You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. 
And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried aloud to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you've spoken to us through your servant Moses. We praise you that you are not just our salvation, but as Moses just said, you are our song. You are what our soul sings about. O Spirit of God, make that true of me as I preach. That as the words cross my lips, they would sound as a sweet song of remembrance of the salvation you offer to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I, I pray that same prayer for my brothers and sisters here. That as they hear this passage preached on, their souls, their lives would be a unifying choir, a unifying song that sings sweet melodies of all that Christ has done for us. Let us worship you as we hear from you. Use me in my brokenness. Use me in my finiteness to show off your beautiful wholeness in your infinite glory. I pray all this by the power of the Spirit and in the blood of your precious Son. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to, to Renaissance Church. Welcome to our online gathering. Again, if you haven't done so already, go ahead, fill out that Connect card, and we'd love to get in touch with you. Now, whether you are, are new here, you've been with us here for a while, uh, we ha- all have a, a shared commonality. And that shared commonality is that we've all had bitter and difficult times in our lives, haven't we? And we can all say we've had, had better times in our life. And regardless of where you are, I'm, I'm convinced of, of this. You're either coming out of a trial, you're currently in a trial, or you're in a better season. But we all know a trial can just be right around the corner. The road and the path that, that we are on is no different than the path that we've seen the Israelites travel upon. You see, bitter is what their lives tasted like while they were in Egypt. And God, God just made their lives better because he saved them by destroying Pharaoh 
in the Red Sea. However, a better life with God is is never an easy life in the story of God. A better life with God is never absent of suffering in the story of God. And so how can life be better for the Israelites if it's not easy? Well, we're going to answer that question. We're going to we're going to try to make sense of that tension that we see in the Bible, but by viewing three movements in the passage you just heard read. The first movement is we're going to see the Israelites singing the story of God. Second, we're going to see the Israelites listening to the voice of God. And three, we're going to see them resting in the presence of God. So those are our, our, our three points. Uh, and you, you might see me look away from the screen uh, this morning. We're having a, a social distanced in-person gathering uh, here at one of our house-to-house gatherings that I'm preaching from right now. Um, but I'm going to try to connect with you uh, behind the camera and with my brothers and sisters here at our house-to-house gathering. And so we got those three points, singing, listening, and resting. My hope and prayer is that we would see that even though our lives might be bitter, Jesus is always better. First point, you all ready to dive in? Singing the story of God. Now, many of you are familiar with my story and how I was a part of the best clique in any given high school. We lived for Friday nights. You see, On any given Friday night in the fall, all of North Lima, Ohio, would come out to support us while also humoring my testosterone-filled classmates who chased an air-filled pigskin uh, for a few hours before and after our performance. That's right. uh, I was in, nay, the president of the South Range Raider marching band. Now, what did we provide underneath all of those Friday night lights? We provided the the soundtrack, the anthems, the fight song at the moment that the fighting raiders crossed into the enemy's end zone that they could not defend. And what did these songs do? They did the exact same thing that Moses' song does in Exodus 15. It invites a community of people back into their shared story of the one who fights against the enemy and wins victoriously. See, last week we had Pastor Andrew beautifully take us on the journey of the crossing of the Red Sea. He walked us through chapter 14. Chapter 14 is prose literature. Chapter 15 is poetic Chapter 14 is a narration of God's victory over Egypt. 15 is not a narration. It's a celebration of God's victory. Exodus 14 tells the old, old story of walking through on dry ground. Well, Exodus 15 sings the old, old story of Israel's redemption. You might walk, march, or sprint in chapter 14. But in chapter 15, you dance. Chapter 14 focuses on what God has done. Chapter 15 rightly celebrates in response to what God has done on their behalf. 
And at the end of the song, look, look at verses 20 to 21. We have Miriam. Do you remember her? Miriam came onto the scene in Exodus chapter 2. Now, Miriam most likely was weeping near the edge of the river's waters. She's trusting that God would save her little brother Moses from the corruption of a king. And look what she's doing now. She's celebrating and singing with the other ladies with tambourine in hand the salvation of God, her true king. You see, this psalm is the first psalm that we see in the Bible. Psalm 1 is is not the first psalm. This is. And this psalm by the sea celebrates God's plan, celebrates the plan of God and reveals his character, but it also tells of his promises. You see, in verses 1 through 11, we, we see Moses celebrating God's plan to destroy evil by luring evil into its own destruction while simultaneously liberating them from a genocidal maniac. This entire song is what we call God-centered. It's centered on God. See, the only time when man shows up in this psalm is when he's either mentioned as an enemy who thinks that he has power, look at verse 9, or as the oppressed in need of power that we see in verse 13. This psalm shows off the plan of God and the character of God. The psalm sings that God is powerful, not man. That God is Lord, not us. That God does the work of salvation and redemption, not us. God fights the battles. We don't have to. God destroys our enemies in the flood of the Red Sea, not us. God is glorious. God is majestic in holiness. And God's plan never fails, even though ours might. This psalm is God-centered. It shows off the perfect plan of God, but also the perfect promises of God that he always keeps and he always remembers. I mean, look at verse 13. It focuses on a future promise. And not just verse 13, but all of 11 through 16. God's presence had been with Israel all along, and now his reputation is going before them. See, God's plan, it's what this whole sermon series is named after, made known to be made known. God's perfect plan and perfect promise is to make himself known to Israel so that through Israel he might be made known to all of the nations. So the nations might fear him and come to worship him. And he promises to the Israelites that they will journey home to the land of all amenities. And it will be better. But the road there will be bitter. But why is it better? It's better because he is with them and he will be with them and reigning forever. That's what we read at the end of Moses' song in verse 18. The Lord, he sings, will reign forever and ever. Singing is the right response to salvation. We sing to remember what we've been saved from. We sing to remember what we were saved for. We sing to remember 
who we were saved by. We sing not about what we have done for God. We sing about what God has done for us in the person and work of Christ Jesus. We sing to remember what we are saved from through Christ, from the penalty of our sin, which is death. That's what we're saved from. Through Christ's death on the cross, we are saved for his glory and for our good and conformity to his likeness. And we're saved by Christ and Christ alone, not by works, but by his grace alone. Singing is the soul's desire to someone who has loved you. I wonder if you notice that character trait of God in the song. I wonder if you notice what character trait God led them by. Not power, not strength, not even majesty, not even holiness, which is the all-encompassing attribute of God. Look at what he led them by in verse 13. They were led by his steadfast, unending, never stopping, never giving up love for them. What is, who is like this God, Moses sings in verse 11. And what he's saying is there has never been and there never will be a God who loves like this God, who leads with his love. God leads by love. And this is not the reductionistic and weakened love that we see in our culture today. Steadfast love, hesed love, is a decisive, committed love. Love led them out of Egypt. Love led them through on dry ground. Love will lead them now to not just singing about the story of God, but listening to the voice of God, even when life seems bitter. We just saw them singing, and now God invites them and us to begin listening to his voice. Second point, listening to the voice of God. Now, y'all, it hadn't been three days since one of the most epic pre-Pentecost worship nights that have ever happened. And God's people are already griping and moaning about God's plan. Look what we read. You'll see this on the screen starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because Mara, of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Israel, I mean, they're in a life-threatening situation. No, no water for three days in the middle of a desert. And their logical response to Moses, you know, the guy who's able to take a large body of water by the power of God and split it in two, their logical response is, let's complain and grumble and say this is not Dasani quality. I mean, if the Lord through Moses can part a sea, don't you think he can make bitter water drinkable? I mean, if I were God, like if, if I were in God's shoes, I would have said something like, I, I should have drowned them with the rest of the Egyptian hellish crew. Like they're no, they're no better. All they do is complain. All they do is grumble. And how often do I, how often do you find yourself singing 
songs about the story of God. And then in the next hour, or the next couple days, you're grumbling about the plan of God. I mean, thanks be to God, he's not like me. Because look at what God doesn't do. He doesn't condemn them for complaining. He doesn't shame them for grumbling. You know what he does? He gives them grace. Grace is a gift that we do not deserve. He hears someone's cry on their behalf. Tells Moses to grab a piece of wood and he throws it into the water and doesn't just make it drinkable, but he makes it enjoyable. He makes it sweet. That's grace upon grace. And here we see the most amazing biblical theme that you'll see from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. Rivers of grace always flow first. Then come the law. Then comes the commands. It's salvation first by grace through faith alone, not by works. And then comes sanctification to work out, not for our salvation. And this is what God does. He shows them grace by giving them enjoyable water and then invites them in to a life with him. Starting in the second half of verse 25, we read, There the Lord, there meaning where he made the water turn from bitter to better to sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute. There's a law and a rule. And there he tested them saying, If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Why? For I am the Lord, your healer. God is inviting them to listen to the same voice that saved them from what was outside of them, to now listen to that same voice because he's trying to save them from what's inside of them. See, the Israelites and us, we are susceptible to the same hard-heartedness that sunk Pharaoh like a stone in the Red Sea. The most bitter aspect of their lives and our lives is not what's outside of us. The most bitter aspects of our lives are not situations. It's our heart condition. It's our heart condition to not want to listen to God's statutes and rules, even though we know that's what's best for our lives. God isn't just interested in saving us from a situation. He wants to save us from our own heart condition. Now, some of you kids that are, that are listening, uh, recently a, a movie came out called The Lion King. Now, this was a movie that your mom and pops watched when they were kids. And so do, do, do you remember in The Lion King, there's a, a character named Scar. He's, he's King Mufasa's brother and his murderer. And he starts to reveal his plan to his lackey hyenas and let, him know, let them know that the king is going to die. And that they are going to kill him. And they're going to kill him for their own liberation. 
And the hyena's response is much like our culture's response to the threat of authority. They sing, who, who needs a king? Yeah, yeah, who needs a king? No king, no king, la, 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 la. See, we, like those lackeys in a story about a king, think that true liberation is the absence of authority. We think that true liberation is the negation of constraints. It's the negation of statutes and rules and laws and commands. But true liberation, God knows this. That's why he's inviting them to follow these ways, to listen to his voice. True liberation isn't the absence of authority. True liberation is the presence of a better authority. True liberation is the presence of a just and merciful authority, a divine and good authority, the Lord their God. See, the freedom that Israel is prone to chase is a life apart from God. And we'll see that in their story later on. And that's the same freedom that we are prone to chase is a life apart from God because our heart condition believes that the better life is nobody telling us what to do. That the better life is you doing you. And we think it'll be better But the reality is that better life is just chains in disguise. And don't take my word for it. Take take the word of the former playboy, North African, turned theologian and philosopher of the 4th century, Augustine, who was caught up in many sexual promiscuities, who was caught up in wanting to be noticed and wanting to be famous among the elite. He even got to the center of all attention. Caesar's house in Rome. And this is what he says about what he got caught up in. He says, I was responsible for the fact that that habit, that habit of seeking fame and pleasure apart from God, had become so embattled against me for what it was with my consent It was with my consent, he says, that I came to the place in which I did not wish to be. And he goes on to say that I was my own jailer. I was my own worst master. Because he was listening to his own voice. Whose voice am I listening to? Whose voice and whose story are you listening to? And singing about. Or maybe think about it this way. I mean, it's, it's, it's 90 degrees, 90 plus degrees outside. The humidity is like at 123 million percent right now. And now, now imagine that your neighbor, like, like my neighbor, invites you over to take a dip in their brand new above ground pool that they just ordered off of Amazon. Big enough for social distancing. We're still safe, wearing masks. It's refreshing. It's reviving. It's even healing to your sweat-soaked body. But then you start to complain to your neighbor that it's not big enough, that these walls are constraining you. You can't swim as much as you would like. And so what you do is you go grab your knife and you start cutting down the walls, even though your neighbor's screaming at you, no, don't do that because you'll ruin this for yourself and everyone around you. 
but you do it anyways. And you and your neighbor are left in a puddle of mud. This is what our lives are like when we attempt to destroy the constraints, the grace-filled constraints that God wants to put in our lives. Lewis famously said, God offers us a holiday by the sea, but we're too happy and satisfied with playing with mud pies. We think it's freedom, but what we're really doing is we're ended up in giant puddles of mud because we chose not to listen to the voice that offers life. Instead, listen to the culture's voice or even worse, our own voice to do what we want, when we want, to who we want, however we want. But God invites you into a better life. He's saying, if you come If you come and live underneath my good and gracious authority, I will not let what happened to the Egyptians, those plagues, touch you. They will not come near you. I will be the Lord, he says. I will be your healer if you listen to my voice. And this testing that we see in verse 25 is not tempting. This testing provides Israel and us the opportunity to know that God is better. Just as they trusted the voice of the Lord through Moses for their salvation, God now invites them to trust the voice of the Lord through Moses for their sanctification. The same voice that is singing the story of God is now the same voice to calling them to listen to the voice of God. And then we see them, third point, resting in the presence of God. Look with me at verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. What, what do we find? More grace. What do they deserve to be in God's presence underneath those trees? That's, that's what the name Elam means. El for God. Elam for for these trees of protection and strength and shade and refuge. What did they do? They didn't do any work. They simply trusted the voice of the Lord. You see, the better life that God promises is not the absence of a difficult road. Remember, they're in the desert. It took a difficult road to recognize that they have rest with them in the presence of God and they have rest coming in the promises of God. So the better life for us is not a different road. The better life is knowing that the same God who has placed you on that road is the same God who is with you on that road and the same God who promises you new life in the new heavens and the new earth. The better life with God is what Jesus calls the blessed life. Some translations call it the happy life or the flourishing life. And Jesus tells us that this blessed life, this better life, is a life that is both blessed 
and bitter at the same time. Do you remember what he said on his famous Sermon of the Mount in the Beatitudes? He says, blessed, better are the poor in spirit. You see the bitterness there? For theirs is a future reality, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. There's the bitterness, for they shall be comforted. There's the better future reality. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, better is your life when others revile you and persecute you for, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's the bitterness. And here's the better life. Rejoice and be glad because your future life, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, the better life is not necessarily all encompassed in the life now. We can have a better life in the midst of bitterness right now because Jesus is better and he's with us now. But the better life that God promises without any bitterness is the life to come when Christ comes for us in the new heavens and new earth. It's a future hope that gives us hope today. But when we read these commands, when we read of God's statutes and rules, Who can say that they've passed the test? Which one of us can honestly and humbly say, yeah, I've, I've lived up? None. Not me. And not you. We took one look at the test. And we said, I'll take a different one. We take one look at that test and we say, thanks for saving me. But I'll be my own authority now. I'll find my own oasis. But here's the beauty of our God. No matter how many times you complain, no matter how many times you fail the test, God's still standing there leading you with his love and leading you and inviting you into his gracious presence. Why is he able to do that even though we didn't live up to our side of the condition? We failed the test. It's because Jesus has come for us. God in the flesh has come for us to be tempted and tried and tested. You see, Jesus is pleading for you right now at the right hand of the Father. We read about the right hand of God. That's where power is, and that's where Jesus is right now. This is why God is willing to show you grace. It's because you have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with you in all your weaknesses. He was tempted and tried in every single way, and he did not fail the test. And he's pleading with God, saying, show them grace, not on their test scores, but on my test scores. I came and was tried in the wilderness by Satan. And you know how Jesus fought his battle against Satan? He sang songs. All the scripture that he quoted back to Satan were psalms, were songs from the Bible. And where do we find Jesus? What do we find him doing in a more horrific desert, in horrific wilderness, 
the desert of the cross where he was deserted by God. What do we see him doing on the cross? He is singing the story of God to himself as he's suffering and paying the penalty for our sin. Jesus was singing when he died. On the cross, he was quoting not a prayer, but Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was singing the Psalms from Psalm 31, I thirst. And he was singing the Psalm 69, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, Jesus took the test, and yet he was plagued with the worst plague of all humanity. Our sin our sin-sick souls and hearts. And it was through Jesus' stripes that the prophet Isaiah tells us that we are healed, that the Lord God is our healer through Jesus because God took our lead and dead hearts that could have been sunk in the Red Sea and instead he sunk his son in his wrath. Listen, we have something greater to celebrate than the exodus of the Red Sea. We have the redemption through the cross of Christ. See, when God drove back the seas for us, the seas of his wrath, we were able to walk through peacefully on dry ground because he drowned his son for our hard heart condition. He drove those nails into Jesus' hand and Jesus' feet. Jesus was not weak like us, but he became weak for us. Jesus was not in sin like us, but he became sin for us. He was not condemned for failing the test, but he became the one who condemned since he took all of our failures and shame upon himself. He took that wretched seat, not in power, not in might, but he came in love. Love led him to the cross. Even the song about the Red Sea seems small and quaint to Calvary's song. See, the way that God makes our lives better is by taking our bitter hearts and making them beautiful again. He doesn't look at our lives as a puddle of mud and decides to throw a log into it. Instead, he throws his son onto a log on the cross where he was punished for our condition. Jesus was cursed so that we can be blessed. Jesus listened to the voice of God so that we can hear from him. Your sins are forgiven. I remember your sins no more. You are redeemed. You are purchased in my blood, not by your works, but by my works and by my blood on the cross. Jesus obeyed perfectly so that we can have true rest and true liberation from our own sin enslavement. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, set us free to live by the Spirit, lives that are marked by peace, joy, patience, meekness, gentleness, love, and self-control. See, until we see that Jesus is better, everything in our lives will leave us with a bitter taste in our mouth. And how are we offered this better life? What do you need to do? Trust in the voice that calls to you. Come, come to me. All you are heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light because I'm doing 
all the work for you, in you, and through you. Church, let us, let us be a people who rest in God's presence, who listen to God's voice and sing his story. Let us be a people who sing his story, sing songs about the one who took our hearts of stone and turned them into hearts of flesh. Let's be a church who sings about all that God has done for us because we have done nothing to earn his grace. Let's be a church who sings songs that focus on the future reality of what's coming, of where we are going, so it informs our present day hope. Let us sing as the as the book of Colossians tells us, so that we can teach one another through singing, encourage one another, rebuke, correct one another through singing, so that we can be conformed more into Christ's image. And let's be a church who trusts in the voice of the Lord, not just for our salvation as a get-out-of-hell-for-free card. But let's be a church who trusts in the voice of the Lord for our sanctification, because Jesus is where life is, and life is found a abundantly there. We know that we are saved by grace through faith, that we don't have to work for our salvation, but we are called to work out our salvation. And we know, we know that even though we might be a people who work harder than the rest, it's not I, it's not me, it's not you, it's Christ who works in me and through me. And let us be a church who reminds one another that true rest, true freedom, is not the absence of authority, but it's found in the good authority and the good and right constraints that God places on our lives and invites us into. And let us be a church, whether we're coming out of a season of trials, in a season of hardships, or about to enter a season of hardships, no matter how bitter our life seems, we can announce to the world that Jesus is better. We can say with the psalmist, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell with the rest of this world. Even though our lives might seem bitter right now, Jesus is better. Would you pray with me? God, where would I be if it wasn't for your grace?